The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Just a quick announcement here before we get going. Uh, Next week is the first Sunday of the month, and as you know, it's time for the drop again. So if you have your canned goods, dried goods, uh, food, uh, you can leave it in the back of your car, and someone will pick it up in the parking lot. And just to encourage you, this has really been effective in helping uh, churches touching lives for Christ to keep their pantries and and, uh, food stocked. Um, So it's it's always good to know that if we went away tomorrow, it it would actually make a difference. Well, we're we're carrying on our our series. Um, We're we're finishing our series, actually, Sent. And uh, we started off by looking, of course, at the authority of the one who was sent. Then we looked at what it would mean if Jesus was never sent. And we looked at the nature of the one sent, and now we're finishing up by what it means for us to be sent. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 35. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Let's, uh, let's start out with a word of prayer before we read. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to the end of another year, we're grateful. We're grateful when we look back for all the good things that we have received from you, your generosity to to, to us. We're we're grateful that you are generous to us even sometimes when we're not even aware of the kind of generosity we're receiving from you. Father, we're thankful. and, And we look to this new year full of hope, full of opportunities. And we pray that you would teach us to number our days aright, to teach us how little time we've got and, um, and that we would use the little time we've got wisely. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to us now as we study your word. And once again, we ask that we would become more like Jesus. Amen. So Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenty, but but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Crowds, compassion, calling. Crowds, compassion, calling. As we arrive at the end of another year and we approach the beginning of the new year, it's always a good time to get a little bit reflective, isn't it, on on what we've done with the time. To put it in economic terms, what have I spent my time on? Have I invested my time wisely or have I wasted my time? what have, what have I bought with my time? What did I buy with 2012? There's nothing like the turning of that calendar page from December to January to get us asking questions like, what did I do with all the, the days and the hours and the minutes that God sent my way? And did I do what God wanted me to do with this last year? As we arrive at the end of another year and we approach the beginning of a new year, there's that other question that hangs over us as well, isn't there? Right? What are we going to do with the next 12 months? Presuming I get another 12 months. That may be a little presumptuous on my part, but if, if there is another 12 months for me, what am I going to do with the next 12 months? What, what does God have me do with, with that? I guess that's what uh, the New Year's resolutions are all about. What am I going to do with this next year? Right? This is the year that I am going to exchange my 
keg for a six-pack. You know, we'll wait till we'll see what happens December 2013. Right? Don't hold your breath. This is the year that I'm going to quit smoking. This is the year I'm going to get out of debt. This is the year that I'm going to learn that new thing. This is the year I'm going to go visit that new place. This is the year that will you fill in the blank. What is your New Year's resolution? I know some of you don't go in for that. Right? I've got friends who feel quite strongly about it. So I don't make New Year's resolutions. Don't do that stuff. And I, I, I get that too. But, but you know, for some of us, making New Year's resolutions is really our annual way of taking this vow, making this vow to ourselves that we're not going to waste any more time. We're not going to waste any more time. Because I'm not sure we always have this sense of the passage of time, a good handle on this sense of time passing us by as quickly, as rapidly as, as it as it does. But, but every year as December becomes January, there's that small window, isn't there, where, where for at least the first two weeks of the new year, maybe that's a bit much, the first couple of days of the new year maybe, right? First couple of hours? I don't know. So, so we, we, have this, we, we have this renewed sense of urgency, right? And, and there's this awareness that now I have even less time now than I did before to accomplish all those things I said I was going to accomplish, to, to do those things I said I was going to, to do. And of course, I think for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, I think these questions are, are a little bit more complex because, of course, we're not just asking, what do I want to do with the next 12 months? But we should be asking, what does God want me to do with the next 12 months? What is God's will and purpose for me in 2013? Maybe I missed it last year. I don't want to miss it this year. Maybe last year is filled with regrets. I don't want this year to be another year filled with regrets. I don't want that. What is God calling me to do in 2013? What is his call? Crowds, compassion, calling. A few weeks ago, I was driving back uh, to the office from a meeting I had over lunchtime. And um, I, I prayed this prayer out loud, which was an unusual prayer for, for me, because I've never prayed it before and I've never prayed it since. But I, I prayed this. I said, God, it would be nice not to have to think about death for a while. I guess I just got into that kind of mode of thinking about death a little bit more than usual. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, the kind of uh, morbid, goth, emo, paint my fingernails black, I'm really depressed kind of thing. I, I, I don't, don't mean that. But I've just been thinking a little bit more about how death rushes to meet us and how little time we've got. Uh, and I just prayed this, I suppose it's rather a shallow prayer, isn't it? I, God, I'd like to be oblivious to this for a little, little while. Literally five minutes later, I get back to the office. There's a message from me telling me that, from my parents, telling me that there's been a death in the family. Sometimes God answers prayer quickly, right? And, and, and so this is not a prayer I'm going to be praying again anytime soon, so you should all feel safe for now. But, but, but sometimes he answers prayer quickly, and apparently the answer to that prayer is no, you can't stop thinking about this. So as I shared a few weeks ago, we got on a plane, went to Singapore to take my, my grandfather's funeral. And uh, what I didn't get to share with you last time, though, was, was this, it, that the whole experience of mourning and, and grieving in Singapore is very different to anything I've experienced over here or back, back in England. So for starters, we, you, you rent this room where the coffin is kept open, and people come uh, to pay their respects from morning till, till very late at night, 11, 11.30 at night, from morning till evening, all day, people come to pay their respects. And of course, family members have to be there to receive the visitors, and you have to feed them. There's usually a meal in the same room as the open coffin. And this goes on from morning till evening, not just for one day, not just for two days, but this went on for five days. Was it six? Five or six? By the end of it, my parents were exhausted. I mean, you can imagine, right? 
Right, so, so they're exhausted, and, and it's as if the whole process is not so much geared towards uh, easing the, the loss for those left behind, those living, but it's more about getting the living to make sure they carry out their duty towards the dead. It's almost like you're, you're there to kind of see the dead off from this world into the next, which takes a few days apparently. Okay, so, so, so what made this whole experience even more interesting was the setting, right? So we're in this building, which is about five, five stories, and uh, on our floor, next to us, there was another room, and, and that was a Christian family grieving their loss there. And we were Christian, so this was the Christian floor. But you went to another floor, and there was a Buddhist floor. And on another floor, there was a Hindu floor. And on another floor, there was some other religion, I can't remember which. And so there were all these religions of the world there in that, in that one building, all represented by people who were facing death, grieving their loss, mourning their, their, their loved ones. So my, my brother got a, a little curious, and so he went down to the next floor because he wanted to see, check out, see what was going on there. And this was the Buddhist floor. Okay? So, so my brother just observed for a little while, and he said, there they were, the Buddhist monks, shaved heads, saffron robes, banging on the gongs and ch- chanting around the dead body. And the room was crowded, packed, crowded with family and friends who were facing the pain and anguish of having lost a loved one and, and were trying to make sense of life and death and that passage of time in between. And it was just the strangest, strangest moment, right? I mean, we'd, we'd never seen anything like this. It felt like the whole world was there in microcosm, you know, all those different religions. It was like the whole world was there in microcosm, and for a moment you just had this sense of the mass of humanity, the crowds all heading over that precipice toward the great unknown. Crowds, compassion, calling. Crowds, compassion, calling. We're told that Jesus saw the crowds and he saw that they were tired and harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus saw the crowds and he said, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And for me, it was one of those moments where I could, the the crowds that Jesus saw and the the harvest that Jesus spoke about were no longer just just an idea in my head or or words on the page, but I could see those crowds right in front of me, and I could see their needs. I mean, as I could see the morning, I could see their needs. Now, this doesn't happen to me very often, okay, because I'm I'm as self-absorbed as the next guy. I've got my own life to live. I've got my own business to take care of. I've got my own concerns and stuff to to deal with, right? Okay, so it doesn't happen very often. But now and then, Jesus gets me to look up. And when he gets us to look up, if you will look up for just a moment, if you will look up for just a moment, you will see those crowds. And if you look up for just a moment, you will see their needs. And you will see that they are tired. And they are harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And you'll see that those crowds need leadership. And they need hope. And those crowds need, they need healing. And, and you know, I think this is how the call of God begins in our life. I think this is how it begins. You know, some of us are here thinking, what is God's call for me in 2013? What, is God, what does God want for me to do in 2000? This is how the call of God, be- it always begins this way. It begins by Jesus getting us to look up away from ourselves and putting us in touch with the needs of other people around us, the, pe- the people around us. And, and it, it, it begins by, by Jesus. If you look throughout Jesus' ministry, he brings his, he's always bringing his disciples face-to-face with those crowds and putting them in touch with their overwhelming needs. Crowds, compassion, calling. Crowds, compassion, calling. These are some of the people who we have uh, who have answered God's call and we have sent them out to work in that harvest field that God says is his. 
the harvest field where he says that the, the, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few, where there are few laborers, where there's little leadership, where there's little gospel, where there's little church, where there are few Bibles, where there's little access to water and all, all of those things. These are some of the workers we've sent out, the Landrums, the Brandons, the Nassers, the Lamfords, the Bowers, the Hensons, some of them here in America, some, some to other parts of, of the world. And each one of these people have, have given up and sacrificed so much. I mean, they've given up the, the comfort and ease of being at home, of being with friends and family. And don't, don't kid yourself, you know. These people miss their friends and family just as much as you and I would. They, they do. I've talked to them. I know this. They do. And, and, and they, they have given up the comfort of living in a developed world, a nation where, where the, you know, they... The, we take so many other comforts for granted. They've given up the comfort and ease of living in your, your own language and your own culture. It is, it, you, it's impossible to describe how frustrating that can be until you actually go and do it yourself. You know, I can't describe it for you. And, and, and so they've given up the comforts. These people have given up the comforts of, 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 uh, of having a nice fat bank account and, and, and earning the kind of money they could have been earning here. Right? They've given up all these opportunities. And so I get to ask them, how, how did you get there? How did you get to, some of these are my dear friends, and I've asked them, how did you get to, to be doing what you're doing? And for each one of them, they, they, they all had this moment where Jesus brought them face to face with those crowds and put them in touch with their overwhelming need. They, they all had this moment where, where those, those crowds that Jesus saw and the harvest that Jesus spoke about was no longer just words on a page, on a page and, and, and an idea in the head, but they could see them right in front of them. And they could see those crowds and they could see their, their needs right in front of their eyes. If you, you know, if you're really serious about this whole thing about following Jesus around these, these next 12 months, you're serious about, if you're serious about following Jesus around these next 12 months in 2013, then, then one thing you're not going to be able to do is you won't be able to avoid the crowds. But because if you're, if you're sincerely asking, God, God, what is your call on my life? What, what do you want from me in 2013? The more people who are seriously and repeatedly asking Jesus this question, he, he, here's what he's going to do. Okay? One of the things that Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to bring you face to face with those crowds and he's going to put you in touch with their overwhelming needs. Of course, we know that it's not enough just to be aware of people's needs, right? Because... Because I can get up here and I can quote all the statistics and number crunch and give you all the facts and figures. I won't because you can just go home and Google it, right? About how many people are living in the world today without Christ and how many people are going to die tomorrow without Christ. How, how many people are living in this world today without access to clean water and sanitation and, and how many people go to bed hungry at night and, and, and how many people don't have Bibles and how many people don't have, have uh, uh, the access to fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ because there are no churches. And how, you, know, you, you can go and Google that, but it's never enough just to be aware, is it? It's never enough to, to just be uh, aware. As, as one uh, author puts it, Christian Landon, from his, uh, his satirical uh, blog, which became a, a book, a New York Times bestseller actually not long ago, he says this. He says, some people firmly believe that all of the world's problems can be solved through awareness, meaning the process of making other people aware of problems and then magically someone else will fix it. This belief allows them to feel that sweet self-satisfaction without actually having to solve anything. What makes this even more appealing for some people is that you can raise awareness through expensive dinners, parties, marathons, selling t-shirts, concerts, eating at restaurants, and bracelets. In other words, people just have to keep doing stuff they like Except, emphasis is, now they can feel better about making a difference. He goes on to say, he says, raising awareness is also awesome because once you raise awareness to an acceptable arbitrary level, you can just back off and say, bam, did my part, now it's your turn, fix it. 
<laughs> Raising awareness, never really enough, is it? It's never really enough. We, we know that because we're told that when Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, that they were tired and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, we're told that Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on them. Crowds, compassion, calling. Now, now compassion, of course, is a little bit more than mere sympathy. Right? Compassion is more than sympathy. Sympathy is where we feel sorry for someone from a distance. Right? We momentarily feel bad for someone, and, and we have a twinge of guilt for their difficult predicament and situation. That, that, that's sympathy. But compassion is more than sympathy. Compassion is also more than empathy. Right? Empathy, we know the difference. Right? Empathy is a little bit more than sympathy, but compassion is more than empathy. So, so empathy, we don't just feel sorry for someone from a distance. We try to put ourselves in their shoes and we try to feel what they feel. And so when they hurt, we hurt. When they cry, we cry. But compassion is more than empathy and compassion is more than sympathy. It, it's not just this feeling sorry for someone or, or trying to feel someone else's pain, but it, it, it goes beyond that. Compassion is the virtue that moves us to act. Compassion is the virtue that moves us to act, to actually do something to alleviate someone's pain and alleviate someone else's suffering. We're told that Jesus had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And in the compassion of Christ, the disciples got to glimpse the compassion of God for this world. You see, Jesus wasn't just bringing his disciples face to face with the crowds, putting them in touch with their overwhelming need and hoping they'd feel sorry for them, that they'd be sympathetic. That's not what he was doing, right? Our sympathy is never enough. So sympathy is never enough to move us to act. And sympathy cannot possibly sustain the kind of work we need to, you and I need to do in this world. The kind of work that will meet those, the, the lack of water and the, la- the lack of medicine and the lack of Bibles and the lack of gospel and the lack of church, right? The, the, the sympathy will never sustain that kind of work. That kind of work will never grow out of the shallow soil of our own sympathy. That kind of work will only grow out of the depths of God's own compassion. So here's the thing. As believers, we need to look at this world very, very differently. Very, very different. We need to look at this world not the way that someone out in the world would look at it. We need to look, we've got a different perspective. We need to look at this world and, and know that God has decided, not we've decided because we felt bad and we felt sorry and we were sympathetic. It had nothing to do with it. That God has decided that he is going to do something about this mess. We, we need to look at this world and we need to know and it needs to become a conviction that God is determined, not that we're determined because we feel sorry and we were sympathetic. But the God has determined that he is going to set this world to rights. You know, someone came up to me at the end of the last service and gave me this quote from C.S. Lewis, which I just want to share with you now. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Screwtape Letters. He says, the more often a man feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Let me just read that again once more. The more often a man feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus brings them face to face with those crowds. And he has compassion on them. There was a... um, French mystic, whose name I can't pronounce, uh, and he said this one time. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. 
teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Isn't that what Jesus was doing? I don't think he was divvying up tasks and assigning tasks and giving jobs to different people. That's not what he was doing. He was giving them this longing. He was bringing them face to face with the endless crowds. He was showing them their endless needs, their immense needs. And then he showed them the endless immensity of God's compassion on this world. And after he showed those disciples God's compassion for this world, well, who wouldn't long for more of that? Do do you long? Do, Do I long? Do we long? Do we long to see God's, the compassion of God poured out on those crowds who are tired and harassed like sheep without a shepherd? Crowds, compassion, calling. You know, after after Jesus has... uh, shown them the crowds, and he's shown the crowds God's compassion, he turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest field. Now, at this point, you know, this is where he starts dragging his disciples into this, because at first it's between Jesus and the crowds, and he's showing them God's compassion, but then, then he, when he turns to his disciples, he's dragging them in, into this, right? You can almost see him, right? As, as he says, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. You can see him shoving them, right? Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more people into the harvest. He'll, he's dragging his disciples into this. Now, here's the thing. When, when we discover that we are being dragged into something like this, what we need to, is, is containment. What we need to do is make sure that we can t- contain this thing, Make sure this thing doesn't spiral out of control and cause all sorts of havoc and upheaval in our lives, right? Because so, what happens is, preachers are notorious for turning this passage into a passage about overseas mission and, and sending people overseas and other parts of the country and, 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 uh, and, and all of them talking about missions and all of them. In fact, our, our uh, missions pastor, Chase Bowers, I don't know how many times he must have preached on this passage and every time it's always about this sending people overseas and all this upheaval and, and all of that. So, so, you know, you need to have a, a kind of plan to deal with people like that, right? So so what I like, I like to have this list of of phrases that I use in my back pocket, which I can, you know, pull out whenever whenever necessary. So, you know, one of my favorite phrases is is this. God is not calling everyone to leave. Okay? And and, and then you quickly follow that up with, and God is calling some of us to stay. So you you put those two together, you've got a seamless argument there, right? This is... This is like a knee-jerk reaction for me. I've got this down. I mean, this, this is like this, this in, inbuilt defense mechanism that, that I've got. It's just, it's just there. Uh, for people like me who like their friends, they love their church, they're comfortable with the way things are, and I don't particularly want it disrupted. Thank you very much. And, and, so, and so what I'll tell them is God is calling me to stay. The other thing I like to do with people like Chase and, and, and uh, these other missionaries that, that we, we talked about earlier, right, when they start talking about the harvest field and everything else, well, what I like to do is I like to turn the question back on them. And I, I, turn it, I have this question for them. What would happen if all of us left? What would happen if we all got up and left? Who would be earning the money to pay for those missionaries to go and do their mission stuff? Huh? You see, you hadn't thought about that. So, so you see, another kind of knockdown, seamless, you know, uh, rock-solid arguments which, which no one could possibly demolish, right? And no one could demolish them. You know why? Because it's true. Right? Because it's true. God, God's not calling all of us to leave, is he? In fact, God, and it's true, God is calling some of us to stay. That, that is so true. <laughs> you know, I don't want to jump to that. I, that. I do. I mean, naturally, that's where I go straight away. But I don't want to, jump, I don't want to always jump to that straight away. Right? That's, that's what I naturally do. But, because I don't want to use that truth to hide from another truth. 
I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to use that reality to force out another important reality in our, in our lives. That the reality that God is calling some of us to stay should not be used to force out the reality that God is calling some of us to go. And in a church this size, okay, we have nearly 3,000 people in attendance every weekend. In a church this size, with so many of you sincerely asking God, what is your call on my life? What do you want me to do in 2013? With so many of you asking that, more of you are going to find yourselves brought face to face with those crowds, put in touch with their overwhelming need, and moved by the compassion of God. You don't want to be moved by the compassion of God? Quit asking, what is your will for me in 2013? Because the more you ask that, more stuff like that is going to happen. J.D. Greer is the, pastor of, uh, the senior pastor at uh, the Summit Church in North Carolina. And they have this amazing vision. that They, they want to plant a thousand churches by the year 2050 in America and around the world. A thousand churches by 2050. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, now, you know, whether they'll actually accomplish that or not, and whether they'll be you know, successful each time and get it right each time, they're probably not going to get it right each time. Okay? They, they won't. But, but here's the thing. What they, one of the ways they're going about this is they're mobilizing and sending families. Groups of, groups of families. Not single families. They're groups of so 10 families, 20 families, as many as 30 families at a time, off the different cities around the country. To, to go and join a church planter and start up a church there. And so these families uproot their lives, right? They get a job in that city. They, they, they move their kids to school. They, they go and sell their home. They go and buy a home there. They, they move. They uproot their whole lives. Now, what's exciting about that, of course, is that these people are planning their lives, their work, their business, their homes, their family, their time, their money. They're planning their lives around the mission. They're planning their lives around the mission. Something else that they're doing uh, is that they're mobilizing their student body. So they're saying to their students, all of their students who who are about to finish up their studies and are about to go looking for a job, they're saying, look, be strategic about this. Think this through. Be intentional about this. Don't just get any old job. Look for a job which is near one of their church plants and, and go work there, live there, do life there, and help get one of those churches off the ground. And, and they're, they're encouraging those students to put in, before careers and everything gets started, put, to put in two years of their life into an endeavor like that. Devote two years. They're calling it the, the Mormonization of their church. Right? You, you, know, you know how they have to give two years? It's like military service. To, it's the Mormonization strategy. Okay? This, is, this is what they're doing. Now, look, the, the point is, the more people who are asking, God, what is your will for me in 2013, the more stuff like that is going to happen. There's going to be upheaval. People are going to be sent. Look at the person sitting next to you. This time next year, they may not be there. Not because they're dead, because they got sent. Right? Hopefully. They got sent. They got sent. What about those of us who are called to stay? Well, some of us may be called to stay. Um... Well, the questions aren't really very different, are they? I mean, I mean, shouldn't we also be asking the question, well, how, am I organizing my life, my time, my energy, my money, my, my resources, my house, my home, my family life, my marriage, am I organizing my life around the mission? Or is the mission having to fit in around these other things? Like, it's going to be one way or the other. Am I organizing these things around the mission or are these other things going to be fitted in when I've got the time and tag on to the end of life? Are they fitting in around? It's going to be one way or the other. You've got to decide. Now, I think for the people who have already left and the people who are willing to go, you know, I think, I think it's a little clearer in their heads. They've, they've made those kinds of decisions. 
They've made those kinds of decisions. It's a bit clearer. But for us, I don't think it's as clear and as cut and dry and as simple. I think we, we need to spend a little bit more time, for those of us who stay, really reflecting on that, chewing on that, turning it over in our heads, honestly wrestling with that, asking the people in our lives about that. What do they see? You going to open yourself up to that? You going to open that door of your life to let someone start speaking that into your life? Okay? This, this is what we need to do if we're, if we're really convinced that we're, we're meant to stay. Some of you I know were hoping that we'd get a little bit more specific. You know, when you started talking about 2013 and what God, what's God will for my life, well, I was thinking you were going to give me you know, more details about how to figure out, you know, uh, you know, how do I figure out God's will for which person, woman or man I should marry or which, you know, which job I should take or which house I should buy and, and all of that thing. But in a sense, I, I, that's exactly what we've been talking about, right? It's just that all of those questions don't really matter. Well, they do, but they're secondary questions, right? That they come under the, the question that really matters. And they can only, they're only answerable once you put them under that question. And that is, how do these things serve the mission? How do these things further the kingdom? How do these things make God's name famous? That, that's, how you, that's how you figure that out. So, so some, some of you are, are um, you know, maybe facing the, a decision about jobs and work. Maybe you've got a selection. Which job should I do? Well, well the question you should be asking is, is this job going to... Drive me, suck me dry of all my life and energy and time and everything else so that I have nothing left to give to the ministry that I know I should be involved in? If that's the case, don't do it. If, 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 that's, if it's robbing you of time with your family and, and the church and the work that needs to be done, then don't, then don't do it. You know, if it's a job that's going to allow you to get involved in, in, some, uh, in some people's lives and allow you to extend the kingdom and fulfill the ministry, then, then go for it. What about the person I should marry? Well, Again, the answer is, the question is, is does this, do I glorify God better with this person or without them? Do, do I, am I going to see, the, am I more effective in seeing the kingdom extended with this person or without them? Am, am I going to be more effective in this mission with this person or without them? You, you know, uh, if, if you're married to someone who you're thinking, well, they're not really into this whole Jesus thing and they're not interested in the kingdom, well, you know what, you can, we need to, you need an opportunity to love that person, serve that person, die for that person. That will be an effective witness. That, and that will make us effective for the kingdom and move the mission forward. Same thing with a, with a house. You know, some of you are thinking, which house should I buy? It's the same thing, right? Is this house going to drain all my resources so that I have nothing left to give and be generous with? Then don't buy it. You're going to open up that house? You're going to let people in? Or is it going to be your fortress? If you're not going to host any small groups in it, don't buy it. Just my bias and personal opinion. David, you can amen that one, right? Well, I just want to leave you with a, a, a few, just, just a few practical uh, suggestions here. For some of you uh, are, are thinking about, uh, you know, missions. For, you, you've been on your heart for a while. You've been thinking about it. You're thinking, maybe I am one of those who sent. Maybe I've been making excuses, whatever. Go to talk to Chase Bowers. He's our missions pastor. He's got an office up here at the church. He loves it when people come and sit in the office and start thinking this stuff through with him. Go and talk to Chase Bowers, our missions pastor. Okay? That's one thing you can do if, you, if you're thinking about this. Maybe you don't even know where it is, what it is. Just, just, just come, come and talk. Start a conversation. Something else you can do is you can sign up for this Perspectives course. It's a 15-week course. Uh, speakers come from all over the, the country, and, and uh, it's an excellent course. They'll help you start thinking through, again, this idea of the crowds and compassion and the crowds and God's call and thinking through what missions is. So it's not just this vague idea in, in our head or romantic idea, which is worse. Um, and then a couple of books. Uh, 
Decision Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen. This is a book that uh, for about 14, 15 years ago, my wife and I read this book, and we just, it, I haven't got the time to tell you the story, but it was a, it was a big uh, kind of paradigm shift for my wife and I and in the way that we thought about all of this. This is a very helpful book. Um, if, if you want a slightly uh, quicker read, uh, there's this book, Just Do Something, and uh, I, I love the subtitle, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. So that, that's... Uh... Let's keep asking God, what is your will? What is your purpose for me? What is your will? What is your purpose for me in 2013? And let's see if God doesn't bring you face to face with those crowds, put you in touch with their overwhelming need and move you with his own compassion. Let's pray. So Father, again, as, as, as we come now, we just come to the end of this year and beginning of a new one. We ask again that we would number our days aright, that you would teach us what a limited time we have and that we would not waste an hour or a minute of it. Father, we want to honor you with this coming year of 2013. Father, would you move us with your compassion? Show us the crowds. Don't let us bury our head in the sand and avoid the crowds. Show us the crowds. Put us in touch with their need and move us with your own compassion for this world. So, Father, we, we uh, look forward with anticipation to the adventure you're taking us on this year. In Jesus' name, amen.